When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everybody thank you for tuning in to the performance anxiety podcast on the pantheon podcast network i'm your host mark and today we welcome ben vaughn into our world the world of performance anxiety ben is one guest whose career left no room for performance anxiety he was always that guy who was super into music but even though he had a genuine love of it he started a family and worked as a landscaper in new jersey for a while but once he started playing he was hooked until pulp fiction though he was a man out of his time but when his surf rock-influenced album Instrumental Stylings coincided with the release of Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, combined with a chance comment on the radio show Morning Becomes Eclectic, Ben's career changed. He began writing music for TV and movies, which had such quick turnarounds, he had no time for performance anxiety. The first of these was the classic Third Rock from the Sun. We discuss all of this, our mutual love of AMC cars, turning his Rambler into a studio, recording an engine solo for his song, and his radio show and podcast, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. We also talk about his latest album, The World of Ben Vaughn, and a whole lot more. It's a fascinating discussion on an unusual career in music and TV. So follow Ben at Ben Vaughn Music on Instagram. Check out BenVaughn.org for more links. Pick up his new album, The World of Ben Vaughn, everywhere music is picked up. Follow us at Performance ANX on the socials. Interesting merch is available at performanceanx.threadless.com. Send a coffee our way at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. And now prepare to enter the curious world of Ben Vaughn on Performance Anxiety, part of Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay. Hello, I'm Ben Vaughn, and you are listening to Performance Anxiety. And I have a new record coming out, by the way. I guess I should mention that. It's called The World of Ben Vaughn. Thanks for listening. Okay, there. how about now? Yes, there we go. All right. Right on. We, we have signal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Oh, my gosh. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Good. Things are a little, things are a little nuts, but, you know, I'm good. <laughs> oh, I, I know the feeling. Been running around here last minute trying to get dogs quiet and settle down and uh, get my notes up, so... Thank you for joining me. I've been uh, catching up on your discography and I love it. It's so, so much fun to listen to. Oh yeah. Well, thank you. Excuse me. Thank you. Um, I, 
I, I don't listen to it myself that often, but I'm I'm, I'm glad it brings you joy. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that. I don't know. How, I mean, I yeah, think most would... artists most most artists don't listen to their own work because they're work, they're moving on to the next thing. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It'd be kind of weird to listen to your work from not just two years ago, but twenty years ago. That's got to be a little weird, I guess. It is. It I don't, is. I don't like editing my podcast because I got to listen to my own voice. I can't imagine wanting to go back and listen to my old episodes. I think the only person who likes the sound of their own voice is Sting. <laughs> or Mick Jagger, maybe. Maybe, but you, I'm certain about Sting. Yeah. <laughs> <There's> no, <laughs> he probably listens to himself all day long. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. There's that guy. <laughs> He's got a good voice. He does have a good voice, though. Yeah, but I don't know. I never got into his solo stuff. Ne a song here or there, but never... I don't know. It's hard for yeah, it, it, it. It was over my head. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just kind of over my head. Like I'm, I appreciate what you're doing, but there's no way I'm going to be able to like grasp, you know, or at least he thinks it's over my head. And so maybe that's why I don't. Well, like that's, it. that's probably true. So yeah. That's probably what it really <laughs> is. Yeah. <laughs> you're from New Jersey. I lived in Jersey for, well, twice, but for the longest time for 13 years. And you lived in Jersey twice. Yes. Well, neither wow. one of them was the by first, my the, choice. The first, okay. I was going to say the first time didn't teach you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the first time I was three and then we moved to Virginia and then moved back up to New Jersey. And I lived there for 13 years after that. So, wow. Yeah. Central Jersey. So I was not too far away from where you grew up. I was in, uh, I was in a little town called Nishanic station right around Branchburg. And, uh, okay. So yeah. They, yeah, they had a big flea market that everybody in New Jersey knows about for some reason. And the English Town, English Town flea market. No, or? no, that was a little more southern. Um, it was in the Shannock Station, Nishanic Station flea market. It was uh, maybe it was just big in in the two counties that bordered it, but it, but that's everybody I knew yeah. anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but it was Central Jersey, so we were like uh, an hour and a little over an hour to New York, a little over an hour to Philly. So. Got a chance to go see a bunch of shows in both areas, which was a lot of fun growing up, uh, you know, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s when I started seeing shows. So, so it was a really good, good era, good place to, to get into music. I totally agree. Uh, I, I make New Jersey jokes, but <clears throat> I grew up right across the river from Philly and what the music I grew up with and the opportunities that were there for me, plus the ability to just hop on a bus and be in New York city and Greenwich village Yeah, go to a jazz club or whatever, you know, I mean, a fantastic place and radio was oh, just amazing. Yeah. You got those great New York and Philly stations, you know, CBS FM was, I grew up on CBS FM. Cousin Brucey was, uh, that was, that was my guy when I was a kid. Yeah. He had the, uh, his show. I got, I don't know if it was Friday nights or Saturday nights. I don't remember when I was growing up and, uh, we would call in. I was a little kid. My dad had has uh, cassettes where he, he recorded me and my brother calling in to, and talking to Cousin Brucey for a little while. It was hilarious. Oh, wow. That's great. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. It's so much, just great memories. Uh, and we were into the old cars. My dad and I used to restore and hot rod old cars. So that all fed into the old, you know, loving the old you know, 50s and 60s music. And it was just, it was just a great time. Wow. That sounds great. That was my childhood. Your childhood, was there a lot of music growing up in your house or uh, were, 
were you kind of like the uh, the black sheep of the family being interested in music or was it all around you? Or? No, I was the black sheep for sure. Uh, my dad was a TV repairman, a real working class guy who yeah. thought all showbiz people were phonies. <laughs> oh, man. Like, there was no encouragement there. And yet he was repairing TVs where all the phonies exactly. made their living. Yeah, but all the guys on TV made more money than him. Yeah. So <laughs> angry about that. <laughs> I can and understand mom, that. Yeah, my mom was great. She was a, um, a fashion artist for Gimbel's department store back in the 40s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she was a model back in the forties. So like that whole Catherine Hepburn look at, there's a lot of photographs of her and she, and she gave all that up like women did back in the late forties to become a housewife and yeah. start raising kids. And my dad, you know, was, it was a very working class guy and uh, she went with it. Wow. And so I, I grew up with like, my mom was like a closet intellectual. Oh, she was okay. a very, very artistic person. She listened to Jacques Brel. And she spoke French and everything, but, yeah. and she, of the three kids, I was the one who, who inherited the artistic ability. So she taught me how to draw and paint when I was really little, but music, rock and roll. My uncle gave me a Dwayne Eddy record when I was six years old. Oh, good and choice. I played it. Yeah. He worked at RCA in Camden oh. and they had a pressing plant there. And Dwayne Eddy was on RCA records and they would give the employees free records. There was a big, you know, stack of them at the door and he would just grab a bunch and he gave me the Dwayne Eddy record. Oh man. And it changed my life. And this was before the Beatles. Uh, this would be like 1962 maybe. Oh, okay. When the twist was really big and, um, you know, American Bandstand was on TV every day and that was, that was coming out of Philadelphia. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and the radio is just filled with doo-wop, doo-wop music. And so I grew up ba basically with doo-wop music as my first, doo-wop and the twist and the mashed potato and all that stuff as my first influence. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of hard. And Dwayne Eddy. So yeah. instrumental, <laughs> instrumental rock and roll, Dwayne Eddy, The Ventures and all that, but also black music, you know, uh, rhythm and blues, vocal groups, and Dee Dee mm -hmm. Sharp and, and uh, the Orlans and all that stuff. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. That's betterhelp.com 
slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Yeah, it pushed uh, our... Well, when I was 12 years old, I started playing drums in a band and I, and I, I did the solo to Wipeout and I got a, you know, a rousing uh, ovation for it. <laughs> wow, I bet. And I, um, for not, and I was thinking, you know, no matter how many great paintings I could paint, I'm never going to get applause like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it also, you know, gr- the girls started dancing. I'm like, okay, well, you, that's not going to happen with a painting no. either. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I know which way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Made itself and pretty I'm, obvious. I got the rock and roll bug, you know, early on and couldn't shake it. Not that I tried, but <laughs> I, uh, I just been a rock and roll fanatic since, since I was a kid. And I had, I was fascinated with radio because my dad brought home, well, he had all these parts down in the basement because he's a TV repairman. And, and he, I found a, uh, when the Beatles came out, I found a shortwave radio down in the basement and I dragged it up to my bedroom and I plugged it in and I could listen to the BBC and, um, oh, wow. Radio Luxembourg. And they had a different hit parade than they had in America. And so I was listening to like some obscure British hits um, that weren't being played in America. And then I also, on my regular AM radio, I would uh, listen to WLS in Chicago late at night. I would listen to the Grand Old Opry coming live from Nashville. Yeah, late at night, you know, the the ionosphere, you know, there's some of those stations, you know, the the ones that had like 50,000 watts. I could listen to, I listen to cousin Brucey all the time yeah. and I was a hundred miles away from New York city <laughs> and I listened to him every night. <laughs> so, yeah. I was a fanatic, uh, like a, a true fanatic. Like people thought there was something wrong with me. Cause I, I was like from an, it was like I'd gotten, I was abducted by aliens and I couldn't communicate my, my enthusiasm very well. So they just thought I was like weird or yeah. possibly, you know, had a learning disability or something. Oh, no. <laughs> but, and, I, <laughs> and my grades, of course, went, you know, were not good because I was so distracted by music. But uh, yeah, it's been a lifelong, like, I have to do this. There was never any, I mean, I tried when I was, you know, a young adult. When I got out of high school, I tried having regular jobs and not being a musician, and it, it just didn't work out. Oh, no. Okay, so was that the point where you really started thinking about making music a career? Well, I got married and uh, was raising a kid when I was 20. Oh, wow. Uh, so my rock and roll dreams. Um, uh, and, and not only that, but when I graduated high school, Aqualung by, uh, you know, by Jethro Tull and Emerson Lake and Palmer were huge and the Edgar Winter yeah. group. And, and it was like, I couldn't relate to any of that music like oh, Genesis man. and yes. And, it was the kind of music I was never going to be a good enough guitar player to be able to play. I couldn't relate to it. So there really wasn't like a scene for me. It was pre-punk, you know? Yeah. You're in the prog era. Yeah. So, I mean, there were a few bands like Flame and Groovies, the MC5 and the Stooges, and I was nuts about them, but it was like having a career in rock and roll and trying to get a record deal at that time. I, my tastes were like on the out, way on the outside of what was being signed and what was being, you know, pursued. Right. So I just, you know, I worked as a landscaper and then I worked, um, and I went to school at night and learned offset printing and I learned, and I was working in a dark room and I drove a, 
a delivery truck in in Center City, Philadelphia. Oh man! Now you see. Now you're speaking my language. Working in the darkroom. I was a photographer for years. And uh, oh, really? Yeah, working in the darkroom is great. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I actually liked that better than work doing the studio. That was you could be by yourself in the studio, but man, being in the darkroom, there's just I don't know. It's just something else. What a great thing is people have to knock before you before they're allowed in. Yes. So I had a job. Um, this was back when I drank a lot and uh, I would be hung over in the morning and I would just sleep in a dark room and, <laughs> and they would knock and I, and I would yell dark yeah. and it would quick, t- I'd tidy up and get up and look, you know, look awake and I'd open the door and let them in. So it was a great job. Oh man, that is <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, I remember having to do that. Uh, well, back in college, you know, we had, you had your final projects do you'd spend all nighters in the uh, dark rooms and on, on campus and the same thing, you know, people would be knocking on your door to get into the into the dark room of the studio and be like hey it's my turn all right and, but i'd be asleep because i'd be working you know 12 hours in a dark room if i felt like a vampire half the time when also you smell like formaldehyde oh yeah <laughs> yes. like w- like when you you really have to wash your clothes because it just seeps <laughs> into your skin and your hair oh man so you're sort of like a zombie oh it's it's ridiculous <laughs> it's a oh i had a, a professor guy great photographer guy named tom lopez and when you're working in the darkroom, you know, you, obviously, you know, you, you would have to use tongs and you, you know, you couldn't, you wouldn't definitely wouldn't want to mix the chemicals you were using the tongs for. Cause you put your fixer in the developer and that kills it immediately. Right. So Tom decided well, for, uh, well, back when he was, he was learning that he didn't like tongs. So he would just use his hands Ooh. and eventually he got to the point where he couldn't sweat through his hands. I don't know what he did, what the chemicals did to his hands, but he lost some feeling and he, and he couldn't sweat in his, through his hands. Wow. So, like, so he, that's part of his lecture and in one of his photo classes. Like, he used, used the tongs and gloves and all because I, I, I effed up my hands. I can't sweat. And that's because of <laughs> wow. photo chemicals. Let that be a lesson to anybody uh, still using a darkroom these days. Use, use your safety equipment. That was another example, though, that darkroom, now that I think about it, I would listen to oldies radio uh, down in the darkroom on a transistor radio, and that was when um, High Lit was back on the air in Philadelphia. He was a really popular disc jockey in the 50s and 60s, and then he came back on the air in the early 80s, and I would listen to High Lit all day, and he played nothing but doo-wop and 50s rock and roll. Yeah, and, uh, there was a big revival of the, for that stuff back then. Yeah, well, Philly, you know, Philly is interesting because it kind of never left because everybody loves to dance in Philly. It's, it's, it's a real thing. Yeah. It's, it's, dancing is probably more important in Philly than it is in any other city in America. It never stopped, you know, going back to bandstand. Exactly. It never stopped. There, there were record hops and people would go out and, and dance to these pretty obscure doo-wop records that, you know, that, that have a real drive and beat to them. And, uh, that's, that's, what's really great about the Philly, South Jersey area is no matter what was going on with progressive rock or hippie music or acid rock or whatever, <laughs> you were always hearing really good oldies and not the obvious ones, not the like right. <clears throat> happy, happy days version of oldies, you know? Yeah. Not Bill Haley. <clears throat> no, no. Some one shot wonder doo-wop groups yeah like really the duques or something yeah exactly i love the duques at what point did you form 
the Ben Vaughn combo. How did that come about? And and how did you start recording? I mean, was, were you doing it independently, or were you offered a, a contract through gigging? You know, somebody saw you. How did that whole band and and recording process come well, about? Well, I had a job as a paste up artist on a night shift. This keeps getting back to the printing business okay. <laughs> for some reason. And a friend of mine in Washington D.C. named Bruce Rosenstein. He had a um, mail order record company, and this was when punk and uh, independent records were hard to find. Okay, it wasn't Columbia and, House, was it? Because I still owe them money. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For those eight tracks, yeah. Was, yeah. the ones they kept yeah. sending that I forgot to. Because you had to mail them something back to them. You didn't want them to send you stuff. Exactly. It's like, it's like with all these subscriptions that you get a trial <laughs> offer on, they yeah. just start charging you. you know? it's, up, it's up to you to make it stop. I, I got in a lot of trouble with them because I would just write return to sender on this stuff and send it back to them because I would keep forgetting to mark off the little box and mail it back to them saying, don't send me another album. And then they, they finally just ended up... St- not sending me anymore because I just kept returning to sender. That's how I got out of it. I think I, I still, I do think I actually still owe them money though. I think the statute of limitations might be up though. I don't think they're over there thinking about you. Just so you know, <laughs> yeah. just... ease my mind. Thanks man. I appreciate yeah, that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's my, it's only my take though. I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. legal advice. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm not even sure if Columbia house even exists anymore. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> And were they in a house? I think that's a good point. So maybe that could yeah. be fraud and I might be released of that's my true. obligations. You guys were in a, in a business park. So therefore you can't live I, there. You're not legally allowed to. So exactly. All right. <laughs> no, but I was, I was working as a, as a paste up artist for this guy, Bruce. And, um, he started the label and he put out a record by a band from Springfield, Missouri called the Morels. And this is really obscure stuff, but the Morels record, uh, he, he hired me to design the, the 45 sleeve for this Morels record he was putting out. Oh, cool. And it was a really cool kind of bizarre looking cover. And the band really liked it a lot. So when they came up to New York to promote the record, they were doing a bunch of shows in New York city. And they told him that they wanted to meet me. So I got put on the, I was on the guest list at the peppermint lounge in New York city, like 19, 1981, I guess it was. I had never been on a guest list before anywhere. Right. (laughs) Big thrill for me. Yeah. And I drove, I drove up and I believe it was, it was February and my Rambler didn't, I I was driving the 69 Rambler at the time and it had no heat. So like I was wearing a down parka in in long underwear, driving my car (laughs) to New York city. And I go through the tunnel and I go up to 45th street and I park and I go to this club and my name was on the list, which was a real thrill. I went back and met the band in the dressing room and um, really nice guys. And they asked me what else I do. And I said, well, I'm actually a songwriter. And they're like, really? Cause you know, we don't really write songs. We, we do other people's songs. So send us a cassette. Oh, cool. So I sent him a cassette of my songs. And a week later I got a phone call and the leader of the band told me that they were, they added five of my songs to their show and they were going over really well. And they're going to record one of them for their next album. Oh, wow. Which they did. <laughs> Thank you. 
Every year when you buy your Christmas gifts, there's always one name left on the bottom of your list. Well, you can search and search in every store, but you won't find nothing that I ain't had before. Cause I'm the man. He's the man who has everything. I'm the man. He's the man who has everything. Yes, I am. He's the man who has everything. And they came to New York City to play a bunch of shows and they were the darlings of like the village voice and the East village eye because they were from Springfield, Missouri, and they were completely unaffected by, uh, show business. They, you know, they looked like they had just finished working on their cars. They were real regular guys. Oh, you know? wow. Nice. And, and they came up and played a bunch of shows and they played my songs and introduced me. And I got up and sang with them a couple of times. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah, and then uh, that led to Ira Kaplan, who is in Yola Tango. Yeah, yeah. At the time, he was a Village Voice rock critic, and he uh, he was booking these Wednesday nights at a club in New York City, and he booked me to play. And when I played, uh, the very first gig I ever did under my own name, I got written up in the New York Times. Wow. So it happened... Like it was, it was like a, and I, but I was already like 27 by then, you know, so it was oh, not like an, okay. not really an overnight success, <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but that, that led to me forming the Ben Vaughn combo. And then, uh, the violent femmes manager fell in love with my music and oh, took nice. me on as a client and got me a record deal and everything got rolling. And, um, uh, that's how it all started for me. I got a record deal and I started touring constantly. And other people kept recording your songs like Marshall Crenshaw doing I'm Sorry, yeah. but so it was Brenda yeah. Lee. Yeah, Marshall Crenshaw recorded my song and um, that, that put me on the map because he was really well respected and he was on a major label, you know? Yeah. So, so that was a big deal. And you've recorded with some amazing people. So, or you, well, not even just recorded, I mean, you've, you've worked like, okay, there's Marshall Crenshaw, but you've also recorded with members of Bell and Sebastian. Uh, you've worked with Rodney Crowell, Alan Vega and Alex Chilton. I mean, these, this, there's a quite a list of, of people that you've worked with and who've loved working with you. That's amazing. How did you actually start producing? Because the second combo album was produced by you and Correct. that kind of started your whole production side of, of, of your career. experience in production when, when you started doing that? No, um, <laughs> I became a, I became a producer because I didn't like, um, working with my first producer who produced the violent femmes. Ah. We, we, we were not a good match. And by the end of that record, the record came out. Okay. 
you know, came out good. You know, people like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, it's going to be reissued uh, again in September of this year. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, for the first time ever digitally. It's never been available digitally before. Oh, really? I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it came out in 86 as an LP and, you know, went out of print about a year later. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was really interesting because my passion for music is so real, you know, whether you like my music or not doesn't really matter, but you can't deny that I'm passionate about music. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like that, like to the point where it's, you know, it's kind of annoying to a lot of people. Like, you know, we, we quit talking about music. So like and, it or um, not, you got to respect it. Yeah, exactly. And people like Alex and Alan Vega and Marshall, they picked up on that right away when they met me. And I wasn't like a fanboy kind of, I just assumed everyone was my contemporary well, I assumed the posture of someone who believed that everyone was his contemporary. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you come on too hard when you're a fan of someone, they, they're guarded. And so, um, I, you know, my, my, I was kind of lucky that um, my enthusiasm for all music, not just, you know, their music, created a bond with a lot of, you know, a lot of people. I got a, a lot of work and I got a lot of, uh, I did a lot of things with people be, because they, they just were attracted to my authentic love for music. Yeah, exactly. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So in 88, you would, you would put out a solo album and not as Ben Vaughn combo. Why did you decide that that point it was, it was just going to be you and not, not the combo? Well, I toured being in a van with those guys would be the answer um, <laughs> <laughs> for too long. Answer. Uh, the combo was together for five years, uh, from 83 to 88. And, uh, the last two years of that, we were on the road constant. We were, we were on the road more than we were home and we were in a van. Oh. We were in, in each other's company 24 hours a day and, uh, underslept, uh, underpaid. And, uh, we finally got to the point where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to continue head, you know, moving on because I'm still writing songs and I have a record deal. Right. And the other guy, and the other guys are like, you know, I, we, we, <laughs> we're really exhausted, man. This is too much, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and it's your, you know, it's like, you know, Tom Petty and the heartbreakers or Bruce Springsteen and the E street band. You right. Know? I was doing all the writing and I was, I was getting most of the attention. So I could see if, unless you're making a lot of money being in someone else's band, doing their songs, the way they want you to do them, the shelf life is not long for that. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. The money wasn't rolling in. Now, if, if we had like a hit record and the money was rolling in, we probably would have stayed together, but that, that wasn't the case. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Then you, so you release Ben Vaughn blows your mind and dressed in black mono the instrumentals 89 to 91 and then instrumental stylings comes out and that's when things kind of change for you if i'm not if if i'm reading your history right that's kind of what brought you into a new phase of your career right that's true that is true i always wanted to make an instrumental record i'm a fanatic about instrumental music and i spent a lot of years back in the early 70s mastering surf guitar which was a dead language 
Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like, it's like speaking Latin, not just writing Latin, but speaking it. Yes. Know? Yeah. It was I, like, it was like I was in the <laughs> Roman Catholic church, you know, playing this anachronistic style and mastering it. And no one was buying it. The marketplace wanted to have nothing to do with surf guitar. Yeah. But I was just in love with the sound and artistry of it. And I spent a lot of time uh, learning how to play in that style and writing music in that style. And none of that really made any sense in the marketplace <laughs> until Pulp Fiction came out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. And all of a sudden I was in demand. Right and place, my right time, time my, with the right sound. Exactly. I went out in 1994. A music super, I put a record out on Barnon Records called Mono USA. record are four or five surf instrumental covers. And there was a woman, Carol Sue Baker. She was a music supervisor who was pitching the bar none catalog to film directors and music supervisors. Oh, okay. And she heard my music and she said, you need to come out to LA and have some meetings because there's a new movie that's getting, getting ready to come out. And when this movie comes out, it's going to be a huge hit and everyone is going to want surf music. <laughs> Man, it's <clears> not <throat> a meeting that they, were, they knew ahead of time. Well, what happened is, so it's the summer of 1990. Yeah, well, it was in 1994. I, I fly out to LA and she gets me a private screening of Pulp Fiction. Ooh, wow. In a, um, I guess it was the ICM agency that, you know, all the, all the agencies, they have little private theaters, yes. you know? Yeah. And so the two of us went in there and we watched Pulp Fiction. And when the lights came up, I said, you're right. This is going to be, huge. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way this movie isn't going to be a game changer. Man. And, uh, so I saw it a few months before it came out and based on, on that, I actually packed up my car and drove out to LA and, and, uh, rented an apartment. Jovi Rambler all the way across country? I sure did. Oh, man. I got to tell you, I, I'm a fan of Ramblers, particularly the Marlin. That's, oh, that's, yes. That is one of my dream cars. If I can get a Marlin, little, little like a modified, little more reliable running gear, I, just, I love that body style. That is a gorgeous car. What's funny is that was a knockoff of the Barracuda. Yes. And, and, uh, but it's better. I Man, I just, I love that car. <laughs> I, Marlin, I Marlin, Marlins I, are, are are beautiful. I know where there's one sitting in. I live in Winchester, Virginia, and I know where there's one sitting in somebody's front yard right now, just rotting away. It's but it's like a it's a later one. It's like a '67. But I called on right. it, and no one ever calls me back. Let me let me get a pen. What, what what's the address? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, if we hey, if we can gang up on them, we we, we can take it. I'm pretty sure we can get it. But you distract, you distract them. I'll get it running. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be a long haul distraction right there. 
<laughs> exactly. Well, well, you know, you, you have time to prepare. That's, that's true. All right. That instrumental styling album is really cool. I mean, for, okay, first of all, I love Battery Acid. That is just a great song. But I think one of the things that I think is great is you have a, a knack for great song titles. And Descaffinado is, I, I love the Jobim reference there. It's just fantastic because I'm a big fan of Jobim. And Descaffinado is one of my favorites. I, I love the homage there. It's, it's just beautiful. And it does sound decaffed. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. A, yeah, yeah. Slightly decaffed version of him, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> you also worked with Dean Ween on this. He's he does a vocal on Stretch Limo. Ween. Oh no, that's, that's actually me singing. Oh, is it? Um, um, he's playing all the all the guitar on it. Oh, okay. Man, I couldn't. I obviously couldn't tell the, which who was who on that, but. Well, I was singing through his fuzz box, so that, that might have something to do with it. Okay, maybe, maybe that's what it is. one of those bands that I didn't get at first and it took me years. Now I'm in, I'm all in on Ween, but it took a long time for me to, and I can't even say understand Ween, but enjoy Ween, I guess is maybe the best way. Did you know him from, from the Jersey days? Cause I know they're from like the new hope area, I think. Right. I did. Um, they used to come to, to city gardens in Trenton and see me play. Well, at least Mickey did. Uh, that's okay. Dean Ween. And, um, they gave me a cassette uh, back in the eighties. They were, they were, they were still in high school at the time and they gave me a cassette. And, <laughs> and I believe I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it was just them inhaling helium and laughing. <laughs> and I'm like, so this, this is it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, this, this is our new thing. Oh my God. <laughs> and so I was like, well, keep, you know, keep me updated. Yeah. I'm interested, you know? And I eventually <laughs> produced one of their albums, but uh, yeah, those guys are geniuses. They're yeah. really like, uh, they're channeling something. So something. on such a, yeah, on such a uh, subconscious level, they, they're, they're like, they're amazing. They're really amazing. It, yeah. I mean, when I first heard them, the first thing I heard was that Push a Little Daisies and I was not a fan. And then, like the the mollusk came out, and, and uh, chocolate and cheese, and and I know I'm getting the the years wrong. I'm I'm sure, but the running order wrong. But transdermal celebration is one of my favorite tracks that they do. I just it took me a long time to get into them, but now that I'm into them, I'm into them. I just thought it was a really cool connection there because I until I started 
researching this, I had, didn't know that there was a connection between you two. It's, it's not an obvious connection. Yeah, I get, maybe it isn't to uh, to me. It is. I mean, like I, you know, it's I. I've known them for so long. Like I don't even yes. really remember how I actually met them. You know, we've known each other that long. Wow. Man. Uh, but the sense of humor and and the love for all types of music. I mean, they're into Merle Haggard as much as they're into Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Or Diana Ross, even. You know, oh, man. Uh, they're just all over the place. So Prince. They're a know. lot like you. I mean, they're they're just passionate about music. Yeah. Yeah. We got along really well immediately. Working with those guys is just fan a fantastic thing. Back to the instrumental styling. So we, we took a little detour there, but so that is what got you into doing music for television and movies, isn't it? It is. Um, I put that album out after I was, after I, I visited LA and made my decision to move there, I wrote and recorded that album really fast. And I played all the instruments myself at my home studio in New Jersey. Okay. Actually it was Palmar Riddell. Do you know who Palmar Riddell ran is? I He's a disc jockey on, on the underground garage. Okay. She puts out records under her own name too. She had a studio at, uh, in New Jersey and in, in the basement of her house. And I recorded that album really fast. And then I handed it over to bar none and I hopped in my car and drove to California. And the day I arrived in California, a, a box of records arrived. Okay. <laughs> it was, pre it was pressed up. And because of my touring days, you know, when I used to tour back in the eighties, you would go to the club and unload all the gear and everything and do a sound check. And then you would run over to the radio station, which, you know, the local either college station or, you know, uh, public radio and drum up business for the show, you know? Okay. Yeah. And every time I was in Dallas, I would visit a radio station there. And Chris Doritas was the host of this show in Dallas and, and he would have me on and, and we became friends and stayed in touch. And when I moved to LA, he had taken over the morning slot on KCRW and had become a really big deal. Okay. Yeah. Everybody listened to Chris Doritas in the morning. He had a show called Morning Becomes Eclectic. Yes. I've, yes. I've seen a bunch of clips from that. Did, I think they would, they play a whole lot, but would, would bands play live on that? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's right. I've seen, definitely seen clips of that. Yeah. He found out I was in town that I had moved to town. So he invited me to come down and promote my new record. And so we're on the air and he says, so why did you move to LA? And I said, well, I moved to LA to do TV and film music. So if there's anyone out there with a, a TV or a film project, call the station. Cause I'm, I'm ready to work, <laughs> you know? And we laughed, you know, and then we, he queued up another record and the phone rang and it was the president of Carsey Werner productions. They did Cosby wow. and, uh, yeah. uh, Sybil, uh, Roseanne, all these, you know, huge shows. And it was the president of that company. She said, I was just driving in my car and I heard you on the radio. I want you to write down this address and I want you to come in for a meeting because we have a pilot that we're working on right now. And I think you'd be the perfect person to be the composer. Oh man. So I wrote down the address. I left the radio station and I drove up to studio city. You know, I, I've been living in LA maybe two weeks at that point. <laughs> this is like a movie, a, yeah, a plot so, of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I drive up to Studio City and go to the CBS lot there. And my name was at the gate and uh, they gave me a parking space. And I went into this building 
and everyone was waiting for me. They had sent someone out to buy copies of my album at Tower Records. Oh, so you got some sales out of it too. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Three, I think. (laughs) Put you right over the edge. Yeah, not that I'm counting. (laughs) (laughs) And they were, and they, they were convinced, like I walked in the door, I already had the job, you know? Wow. And, um, they gave me the job. They said, we want you to be the composer for third rock from the sun. And they showed me the pilot and I was like, wow, if John Lithgow is in this and Jane and Jane Curtin's in this, I'm in, Yeah, you know, if they're willing, if they're willing to do a sitcom. And this is probably, probably not, not a, like a, you know, this is probably a pretty intelligent sitcom. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Didn't they come to earth in a rambler or something? They did. And that's, that's the funny part of the meeting. Okay. Is, um, <laughs> they're showing me the pilot and, and I, and I see the rambler. I go, hold it, hold it, pause that tape. And they're like, what? I go, pause the tape. Like why? And I said, look out. Cause they gave me a parking space right next to the building. I said, come over here and look out the window. And they look out the window and there's my rambler. <laughs> I said, see that car? And like, yeah. And I go, I drove from here from New Jersey in that thing. And they're like, Oh my God, you're definitely our composer. <laughs> Oh, it was just meant to be. It was kismet. Yeah, well, a friend of mine said you you arrived at the right time with the right sound in the right car. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So everything, you were just, you were a throwback in the perfect spot. Everything about you you was a throwback in the perfect spot. Well, the funny thing was what they said to me is, you know, we've been, they auditioned a bunch of composers uh, for this guys who were established people with agents, you know, and they all handed in that kind of like fern jazz. We used to call it like, <laughs> oh, okay. you know, yeah. The sax- saxophone or like a little guitar lick that was like kind of jazzy or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. Soft rock kind of, I don't know, you know, and, um, they said, what we're looking for is American rock and roll as if played by aliens. And we think you're already doing that. <laughs> sightings i'm on the line with jennifer who claims to have actually met aliens <laughs> i love so that I was, yeah and i was like i think that's a compliment yeah <laughs> i'm gonna take not it as sure one. yeah i'm not sure <laughs> regardless i'm taking it as one yeah so, it was great so you how many shows did you i mean not counting because i know pilot season gets kind of weird with stuff that doesn't come out that work on but how many shows that actually made it did you end up working for because you were doing this for about 11 years was that yeah, 11 years. So I know there was uh, uh, Third Rock from the Sun, and I know there was that 70s show. Yeah, uh, I was doing those. Uh, well, Third Rock from the Sun, and then I did a show called Men Behaving Badly. Oh, yes, I remember that show. So I went from uh, doing Third Rock, which went on the air and became a hit, and all of a sudden I got hot, you know? Yeah. And they offered me Men Behaving Badly, so I was doing two shows at the same time. And then that 70s show kicked off... I think I was doing three at a time. Oh my Plus I was doing pilots. I did a bunch of pilots whose names I can't remember. 
but a bunch of them like pilot seasons nuts. Like I would do three or four pilots in May. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a blur. I can um, imagine. Yeah. I, I did music for a show called inside Schwartz, which was on Fox, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I, and it was on for two or three seasons and I did a show called off center for the WB or the, yeah, the WB, uh, which was, I think three seasons. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, like six and a half seasons of third rock and eight seasons of that 70 show. And I was working around the clock. I was basically working 14 hour days. Uh, oh, I didn't have much of a personal life during that time. Oh, I can imagine not. Yeah. And I just accepted everything that was offered to me because I couldn't believe they were offering it to me. You know, I went from, <laughs> from z zero to like, you know, being hot. It was yeah. like, um, it was, it was pretty incredible. And I just, um, I just, you know, coming from a poverty mindset, like I, like I did, I would, I just accepted all work and I, and I started hiring other people to deliver it for me while I, I just composed and I had music editors. I had a, my own production company with all these people working under me, which wasn't a was not a natural dynamic for me, but it was necessary. You know, I can only imagine the pressure with that. I mean, I, I imagine one show has a lot of pressure to it, but three at one time. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'd be, I see, I would be afraid that I would just mix up songs and send, send the wrong song to the wrong show. That'd be my biggest yeah, yeah, fear. Exactly. Like you'd be like men behaving badly. Why does this episode sound like aliens? Yeah. <laughs> American rock done by aliens. What? That's, that's not what I wanted. It was great though, because it was so challenging and it was, um, you know, every day you wake up with a blank canvas and at the end of the day, you have to have like, you know, 47 pieces of music written and recorded and delivered. <laughs> God. You know? It was awesome at first. And yeah. Then, uh, maybe about five years into it, I realized that I'm kind of repeating myself. Like, I, like uh, the challenges were becoming more and more familiar. You know, there wasn't a, yeah. the, the variety that I felt in the beginning. I wasn't feeling it wasn't there for me as much, but, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I loved it. It was really great because it taught me how to, um, not have a writer's block for one thing. Oh yeah. Uh, because if you have a writer's block, they fire you. Oh God. Jeez. Yeah. So you, you have to write, it's like writing for a newspaper. You can't have a writer's block if you're a journalist. Right. For sure on a daily newspaper, they'll, they, they'll just fire you and get somebody else who can handle it. You know? So when, <laughs> so when they're coming to you with ideas and I imagine they're, they're just non, they're giving you ideas in non-musical terms. How long are these, are the pieces that you're writing for them? Are they like, you know, a couple seconds? Are they a minute? It depends on whether it's underscore or transitional music. And I would create a library of transitions and I would uh, have these marathon sessions where I'd, I'd put a band together. I, I started out playing all the instruments myself. And then I realized that this is going to take me forever, you know? Oh God. Yeah. So I would write the, I would write everything and make a little recording of it. Like in just, a, you know, into a regular tape recorder sitting at the kitchen table with a guitar. Okay. And then I would gang all of those up and put a band in the studio and we would cut all these three second, eight second, cues 
And then we would record a bunch of long pieces because on that 70s show, every time they were down in the basement or they're at a record hop or whatever, that's my music in the background. Oh, okay. Wow. So we had to create a lot of long pieces too for atmospheric music. So we would do these marathon sessions. So we, part of it is library where what you do is you pull. When you look at the episode, you pull from an existing library and plug things in. Okay. And then there were times when they wanted you to write something specifically for a scene, like it's a strip club or who knows, maybe it's a, you know, a movie they're watching on TV and they want it to sound like a certain thing. So are you writing things and just kind of cataloging them and, and waiting for them to be used or is everything, is that, is that what you were talking about by pulling? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Creating library. Uh, the most exciting part about it, about my time working on sitcoms, I don't know what it's like now, um, <laughs> is inventing the sound of the show. Okay. It's so exciting because the show has no sound yet. Right. Okay. Right. I see what you're saying. And so like with third rock from the sun is a good example. If you were in the kitchen getting, you know, getting a, a drink out of the refrigerator or whatever, and you heard the music, you would know the show's back on. Yeah. Because it's like, there's no way it could be anything else other than third rock. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was for me that that was the job. The job was to read the scripts, watch the pilot, maybe go to a taping of an episode and, and, and talk with the writers and the creators a bit, and then try to create a musical sound that is that show. Like Seinfeld, when you hear, yeah. you, you know what shows on TV. Yep. And um, for me, that was the greatest because you definitely have a blank canvas and is, the pressure is really on. And I loved it. I loved it. Because you were so busy at that time, you thought it was a good idea to take your Rambler and turn it into a recording studio because <laughs> you must've had a lot of extra free time on your hands. Actually, I recorded <laughs> that album before I left New Jersey. Really? Yeah. Oh, it sat in the can yes. It sat in the can for two years. Wow. Actually it came out in Spain right away. And well, you're big I there. Did... I remember that. You may be telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it came, it, it came out in Spain and, um, but I recorded that record in my driveway, in my Rambler, playing all the instruments. I would drag my studio out, set it up and record, and then drag everything back in <laughs> at night. <laughs> that was a challenge. I was bragging to a friend, like I could, I could, you know, I can make a good record anywhere. I could even make a good record in my car. And he goes, yeah, we'll prove it. And I was like, oh man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, it's what's really funny at the time. I was telling everybody, you know, uh, that this is the, my way of, um, avoiding a midlife crisis. Oh, and as I look, as I look back now, I realize it was a midlife crisis. <laughs> Why else would a, would a, you know, a, a guy who's getting ready to turn 40 be recording an album in his car, in his driveway. That's definitely a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, at the time, when you're having a midlife crisis, one of the sure signs is that you're in denial that you're having one. Yes. That's the ironic part. I think having a midlife crisis. I think that's what this podcast is. I think that's maybe my midlife crisis. Well, I'm glad to help. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, it's such a cool album. I mean, seven days without love is great. Seven days without love makes one week. 
some weird stuff going on like levitation you I mean, had some sort of crazy like sitar stuff going on in there and and then heavy machinery is that a like an engine in the so the, the, yeah an engine solo an engine so- <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> is what you do isn't it well yeah i mean that's that's what a midlife crisis is all about recording right. your engine solos picking the right mic for it and, <laughs> and the placement you know how, how close how far oh. should it be in stereo with two mics i mean this is classic midlife crisis um <laughs> you know but i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't afford a new motorcycle so i recorded an album in my car but it's very very similar i thought i i heard you had you actually had two ramblers that you were you were considering using, you had to choose one or the other for the studio. That's true. I had a '65, and I had a '64. The '65 wasn't running uh, very well, and I just bought the '64. So I did a sound check in both cars. I recorded the song <laughs> in both cars, and I listened to them. And the '65 sounded better. Interesting. Which now? Which one did the uh, guitar solo or the the engine solo? Excuse me. 65, I had to get it running. Okay. Um, it stalled out and never started up again after I recorded that solo. Oh my God. That, <laughs> yeah, that, was, like, so, that was its uh, crowning achievement, the swan song. Yeah, the last sound that that engine ever made is on that record. Now, how many people can say that? I've had plenty of engines die on me and I've never had the chance to record any of them. Well, you know, you're, 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 you're living your life wrong, my I, friend. I am. I'm doing something wrong. I got to, you know I got to walk around with all my podcast equipment in my car now. You could do your podcast in your car. I, yeah. You don't even tempt me because my wife will kill me, but I might, that, I think I've actually seen some people do that. I'm God. Now I'm thinking. She might not kill you because it'll get you out of the house and that might be a good thing. That, <laughs> she'd have to catch me first. Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> but so after you did this, which this album is kind of considered a classic in your discography. I mean, not just in your discography, but a classic just for the great songs, but also the, just the ingenuity, I think, of turning a car into a studio. And it, it sounds amazing. It doesn't it doesn't sound like it was done in a car.
after that, you well, cause first of all, you made a film about it, which I thought was awesome. But then you did another another odd album with Cubist Blues with Alan Vega and Alex Chilton. <clears throat> How did yeah. that come together? I th- you knew Alex. Did you know Alex Chilton before? Because I think his his song as the uh, theme for that seventies show, right? Yeah, yeah, that came later. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, when um, I, I I met Alex, uh, we had the same booking agent, and in uh, nineteen, okay. you know, back in the eighties, Alex and I both had records coming out the same day, actually. Oh wow! In, in nineteen eighty seven, I met Alex back in the early eighties. Before, uh, funny story, actually, I I met him in like nineteen eighty three, and um, his booking agent introduced us to each other. And I was looking for a record producer at the time and Alex had produced the cramps and I thought that was good enough for me, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I gave him a cassette and, uh, he looked at it like he had never seen a cassette before. You know, he's like, Oh, this is interesting. Um, he goes, uh, are these original songs? He, he, he spoke very slowly and in a, in a very like almost Truman Capote kind of way. You oh, know? okay. Yeah. It's like, so are these uh, uh, originals? And I go, yeah, original songs. He goes, great, thanks. And <laughs> he put it in his pocket, and I thought, well, this is going to go nowhere. Right. You know? And then um, four years later, oh, God. We're, we're booked together on a tour, a lot of dates through the Midwest, and I'm the opening act, and he's headlining. And um, the first sound check, he comes up to me, and he goes, hi, Ben. Do you remember meeting me? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I love your cassette. Oh, wow. like four years <laughs> later, like, <laughs> like, it, like, he, like it was almost like I just given it to him yesterday yeah. or something. I love I your cassette. Just got a chance to listen to it. Yeah. And we, be, we became good friends right away. Oh, and we awesome. were going, you know, we would go to pawn shops and look for guitars and hang out. And, uh, you know, we were on tour together. So we, we got a chance to spend a lot of time together and then, we would visit each other and each other's, he would stay, you know, I would go down to New Orleans and stay with him and he would come up to Jersey and stay with me. So we, oh, awesome. we, we became good friends and, um, we really liked, we really, uh, enjoyed playing guitars together and sharing what we know. I learned a lot from him and he, uh, forced me to teach him some stuff that I, I don't know if it did him any good, but he, <laughs> <laughs> he, he forced me to teach him stuff too. <laughs> And, um, I was, I, I also got to know Alan Vega. I was a huge fan of Alan Vega yeah. and suicide, big influence on me. Alan Vega put a record out in 1980 called jukebox babe. Yes. That to me was the beginning of what modern rockability for me, it was like, Oh, you can take the elements of rockability, but just play on one chord, keep it hypnotic and just get that feeling and not, not worry about having a real upright bass or trying to be Elvis or anything. You, you can right. take it into a, a more original area. And that record just blew me away. So I went to see him play and I was always kind of fearless. I would just go into the dressing room and just introduce myself to wow. people I like. And I'd either get kicked out or they would, welcome me either way. I didn't care which way it went, you know? Yeah. It was going to go one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I did that with Alan Vega and I did it with the violent fans. That's how I got to know them and, wow. and their manager. And, um, but I do, I did it with Alan Vega and we stayed in touch and I was sending him cassettes before I ever had a record deal. Okay. 
he tried to get Rick Ocasek to produce me actually at one oh, point. Wow. Uh, that didn't happen. But um, finally, Alan and I decided to make a blues album together in New York. And this would be in 1994. And uh, I mentioned it to Alex. I was talking to Alex on the phone and he said, he asked me what I was up to. And I said, well, you know, next week I'm going to be, I'm going to be producing Alan Vega, you know? And he goes, you're kidding me. I love Alan Vega. I said, Oh, you're a fan. He goes, I love Alan Vega. He goes, what are you doing? I said next week in New York, he goes, can I play on it? <laughs> and I was like, well, there's no money to fly you up because I'll pay for my own fare, man. I, wow. I, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I would love to, I would love to do this. Oh man. So I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And, um, those two had met at CB's back in the seventies. Uh, okay. so they sort of knew each other and we got together and, and, uh, two nights we played all the instruments, the three of us, and we cut the whole thing live. Wow. And, uh, yeah, just completely improvised, like a jazz record, you know? Oh, that it's such a strange album. I love it. it Cubist Blues. And so Freedom and Too Late are probably the highlights for me. But I absolutely love like, the, the rumbling and the, the straight-up feedback of, of Candyman and Promised Land. It's, it's such a unique album. I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. And Alan's voice is like an instrument. I mean, you know, the human voice is an instrument, but in his case, he's like a saxophone or a trumpet or something. Cause a lot of times it's not lyrics. It's just him moaning or, you know, doing something. Yeah. And uh, we, we, we leaned in and listened to Alan and we followed him. Wow. And uh, we did two live shows to promote that record when it came out. It came out about a year or two later. Everything is funny because I recorded that and instrumental stylings and Rambler 65 all with, within like a two month period. Jeez. And then I hopped in my car and went to LA and all those records started coming out after I had left New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going through the catalog and do my research and I saw glasgow time and you've got a song on there that i've heard a little bit about but i was kind of surprised that after so many years you decided to record the song houseboat oh wow yeah and i have a wish everybody has a wish if my Why that song on that album? And is it much different from when you first wrote it? Cause that's, I think that's, you said that's the first song you ever wrote, right? Uh, it's almost, yeah. About okay. the second or third song I ever wrote. I wrote it in 1975, maybe. Wow. 
Um, I was just learning how to be, you know, it's really interesting about that song. I wrote it and the lyrics at one point are almost identical to in the street by big star, which I had never heard yet. Oh, really? I didn't, gosh, I didn't even put two and two together. Not a thing to do, but talk with you. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was on a, on that path, you know? Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I wrote that song, you know, I was like 20 years old. And I was learning how to be a songwriter. I wasn't really a very good songwriter yet. I was still learning how, how to actually put chords together and melodies. And the lyrics were not coming together as easily yet. But um, when that song, they did. That was the first song I wrote where, that I didn't mind showing people. Ah, okay. But I never recorded it. And so we were in Glasgow, and I'm, I was working with the Teenage Fan Club guys and um, oh, yeah. the Bell and Sebastian guys. And that was a connection through Alex. Oh, Alex introduced yeah. me to all those guys. Uh, but apparently I had a record. Um, I put a single out in 1985 called My First Band. I had my first band back in 1967. First, yeah. first record the combo ever put out, the Ben Bon combo, and that became a dance club favorite in Glasgow. Oh, wow! And it got it got released on a on a local label there. A guy started a label for the for the purpose of putting my forty five out. Oh wow! Uh, That's a awesome. label called a label called Fifty Third and Third Records, which is a Ramon song. Fifty Third and Third. Okay, yeah, yeah, uh, and um. So I had this popularity in Scotland waiting for me. That, and this was before the internet, so I didn't know about it. I didn't know about <laughs> any of this. You know, there was no way to know. Unless yeah. somebody wrote, wrote you a letter oh and you God. read it, you know. And so I didn't find out until Alex mentioned me to um, all the musicians in Glasgow saying, you know, that he was always promoting me, you know, and, uh, and they said, Oh, we're very aware of him. Is he, <laughs> and then one guy said, is he still alive? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like some legendary blues musician uh, right. from, from, you know, yesteryear who would, you know, <laughs> so and, and Alex said, Oh yes, he's very much alive. And here's his phone number. And I got this phone call oh, from uh, Francis McDonald. And, you know, with that great Scottish accent, hello, are you Ben Vaughn? This is Francis MacDonald. Yeah. I'm wondering if you'd like to come over and do some shows, you know, and, uh, <laughs> that's great. I went over and we, we, we played some shows and he, and then he, he suggested, why don't we just go into a studio and record? And I had some new songs written and then we were sitting around and he said, you know, what's the first song you ever wrote? And I said, well, you don't want to hear that one, but <laughs> The third song I wrote, and I played it on guitar. We we're sitting in the, the uh, lobby of the uh, recording studio, and I played it. And and next thing you know, we went in, into the tracking room and we recorded the song really fast. So okay, so you you had a a club hit in Scotland. You also ended up having a, a dance hit in in Italy. So you you're internationally fantastic when it comes to dance music. Apparently, 
<laughs> I can't relate to, I can't relate to a lot of, uh, what happens, <laughs> you know, like I've had success happen to me where I'm still not sure exactly wh what I I'm experiencing. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been really lucky that, um, you know, the people who get a chance to hear my music and I'm an artist, you know, some of your listeners are not going to know who I am. And I'm, a, I'm aware of that. When you mention my name, you're either going to get like, oh, wow, I love that guy or who? Right. <laughs> yeah. And mo and mostly who? <laughs> and um, which is OK with me. I was never really looking to be Elton John or anything. Right. But um, I'm lucky that when people do get a chance to hear my music, it usually goes down well and people and people like it. Oh, yeah. Now, you've got a couple things going on. You've got a, a radio show that you've been doing for quite a while now. And you've got a new album coming out. So which one do you want to tackle first? <laughs> I, let's do with the radio show. How did you get started doing a, a radio program? When I was living in Jersey, WXPN started a syndicated show called World Cafe, which became huge. But at the time, they were just building it out. And they asked me uh, if I would come in and uh, pick some, you know, the roots of rock and roll kind of records, like a staple singers record or play a Bill Monroe song that Elvis influenced Elvis or whatever. Okay. They wanted a resident musicologist basically. And I had a presentable enough speaking voice <laughs> <laughs> and they, with, with uh, not too much of a Jersey accent. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, uh, Hey, check so out I this started, song over here. Yeah, well, I, when I started, I probably sounded more Jersey than I do now. <laughs> but uh, but um, I would go in and record these segments and host them. And um, and I got the bug, you know, like I was a radio fanatic when I was a kid. I, yeah. Like when I was a kid, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a musician or, or a disc jockey, you know, or a songwriter. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I wanted... Any of them would have been fine. Any of those job descriptions would have, would have made me happy. I just wanted to be around music all the time. And being a DJ, I really, really respected DJs, especially back in the Freeform FM days. And uh, be became friends in Philly with David Dye and Michael Tierson, the guys I listened to when I was growing up. I became friends with them. Oh, that's awesome. Again, because of the love of music, you know, and there's like a kinship when you meet somebody and you're crazy about music that just kind of like, it's like an instant friendship, mm -hmm. you know? And so XPN, when they were doing that, David Dye asked me to come in and record these things. And when I moved out to LA in 95, KCRW asked me to be the fill-in guy. I would do um, the Red Eye show, which was midnight till four in the morning. Oh, God. <clears throat> Which I love because the phone calls you get are so weird. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and you can play anything you want. Oh, that is great. And, and then you're just answering the phone and insomniacs and people who are high on, on something or other. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, so I always loved it. And WEVL in Memphis, I always had a, a, a good fan base in Memphis when I played there. That was one of the few cities in America where I could sell out a club every time I, I showed up in town. And I went down there to, for a visit and they asked me if I wanted to guest DJ just for fun. So I did. And I went through their library and I picked out a bunch of stuff and I got on the air. 
And the response was really great. And they asked me if I wanted to do a remote show, send them, I would send them a CD (laughs) Um, every week. I would, I had a recording studio here in LA that I was using to do TV music. And so I, I started doing a weekly radio show in Memphis. They put me on drive time on Fridays. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and it, it picked up, you know, became successful pretty quick. And so I decided to approach WXPN and see if, if they wanted to help me syndicate the show. Okay. And, uh, they went for it and, um, they were the second station to air me and I'm on 28 stations now. Oh, cool. And, uh, and it's available as a podcast and the podcast is actually more popular than terrestrial radio. People are really, um, I have a really great listenership. They binge listen to my, to my show. That is great. Yeah. And I'm playing records that are not usually played side by side for one thing, because I'll play bluegrass and I'll play punk and bossa nova and jazz. And then, you know, a folk record and then, uh, you know, blues and soul and then a reggae record. And then I got an international record, you know, by Edith Piaf or something. Oh, and, uh, and so those kind of programs, there aren't that many of them out there. So I don't, I don't have much competition. Yeah. And, uh, the audience for that sort of thing are really enthusiastic and I get some really great messages, you know, uh, emails and messages and comments based on my playlist. It's really nice. Oh, that is fantastic. I love hearing that. I'm, I'm in a room right now filled with records. So this is what I do. <laughs> I, I would be playing these. I would be playing these records without a radio show or or with one. It doesn't matter. I know that you know, I've I've got I've, yeah. Well, I can't say, I've actually had to move them, but I've got. I would say I'm I'm hovering close to four thousand CDs all over in different spots in my house. So wow. And then I've got a bunch of vinyl, but I have mostly CDs. I, vinyl, I'm afraid to play anymore. I just get. I, I do what a lot of people do at this point, and they buy it for the collectability and. It's got to be something I really want because I'm just, I don't know. I'm just very. I, yeah. I, my, my, my vinyl collection is probably worthless because I play it. I actually play my records. <laughs> so like if I ever wanted to sell this or if a collector ever came over here, they would be like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I also uh-huh. don't really have anything to play it on. I've got a turntable here somewhere. It's, but it's one of those that you can just plug into your computer and turn and, and turn your vinyl into a digital file so i don't know exactly if it'll play real well in a stereo so i I don't even that's the only turntable i've got and i'm not even sure exactly where i think my son took it (laughs) because he loves that stuff too so he may be the next ben vaughn but for his sake i hope not (laughs) (laughs) it's a race with the devil (laughs) oh hey there you go i see what you did there so you got a new album the world of ben vaughn and yes, is that your Rambler on the cover? It is. That's the same Rambler I recorded the album in. I actually had it towed out here. Oh wow! To your secret well, location? Not, well, not not towed. It was actually on a uh, flatbed truck with a couple other cars that had to be delivered to the LA area from New Jersey. Oh, but uh, we brought it out here to f- to shoot the Rambler video. We shot the Rambler video out here. Oh okay. And we needed the car, so we sent it out. And, um, I have a house out in the Mojave desert 
uh, I bought a house in the Mojave Desert oh, in wow. 1998. And I had uh, the car towed out there and it now sits on my property. <laughs> and it's um, part of the directions that when I give people direct, my house is really in the middle of nowhere. There, you can't see the nearest neighbor. Oh, that is awesome. I'm jealous. So when I give people directions, I say, you know, turn left at the Rambler. <laughs> oh, man. The t- okay, so I'm going to start off kind of like maybe backwards here at this point because, well, I don't see when I listened to it and I was sent the, the music, it all came in alphabetically. So I have to look up, I have to look out how it was sequenced because I'm not, I've, I've been listening to it, but I've been listening to it in the absolutely wrong running order. Oh, wow. That's I interesting. Didn't even <clears throat> realize it until I just I actually was pulling everything up for the uh, tonight to record with you. And I'm looking and I'm like, wait, everything I was listening to is in alphabetical order. This, that's not how it runs at all. So track eight, you're going to wish love was never invented. I absolutely love the tone on that guitar and the, the, the solo is that is awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. On your door, guitar. Tell them how I feel. Say it again. You're gonna wish love never invented You're gonna wish love never knocked on your door Think about it That sounds well, like thank you. great you know, classic rock I mean it, that's got like a, a great like Jimmy Page feel to it I, I, I love that solo that is so good Thank you Thank you. Are you using vintage equipment or is it new stuff? Combination, okay. a combination. Um, it was recorded. I, I played all the instruments myself on the record. Oh, okay. and, um, and I recorded it at my, at my home studio. Uh, two places, actually. My apartment in Santa Monica and my house out in the desert, which is the Relay Shack where I do my radio show. Oh, okay. So I, I um, recorded in both places and I have like portable equipment. It was, it was I'm still throwing equipment in my car and driving. I don't know. What's, <laughs> <laughs> you would think, you would think by now that I wouldn't be doing that anymore, but I still am. You would have learned your lesson, but no. Nope. Yeah. It's a combination. I mean, that, that record, um, yeah, I recorded everything myself. I'm playing, uh, you know, bass drums, uh, guitar, keyboards. Oh, I think awesome. yeah, two harmonica songs on there banjo 12 string guitar man that's pretty good variety of stuff on there i love the advice of nobody likes to show off i think it's a great song i'm gonna I'm play i'm gonna play that for my kids a lot <laughs> remember this listen keep this in mind but i also love the sentiment of new jersey rock and roll because i know exactly what you mean there's a pain in my heart a pain in my soul Thoughts in my head I can't control The way I feel Couldn't be more cold 
I need some New Jersey rock and roll. Rock and roll. Yeah, it's a song about being homesick, you know. And uh, I lived out in California briefly back in 1980 um, when I was getting divorced. I came out here to kind of get my head together, which did not happen. Um, <laughs> I had like a, a lost weekend out here. Oh. And um, I remember uh, I was never a big, f- I like Springsteen. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I love him as a person more than I like his music, you know? Okay. And, um, but I, I was never a fan of the saxophone being so dominant on his records. You know, I, you were like the only person that I think says that besides me, because I feel I've, I've always felt the same way. My brother is an enormous Springsteen fan. And we, we've had this discussion all the time and, and that's kind of the same thing. I've, I've always been more of a guitar guy myself and the saxophone being right up front all the time. It's just not my thing. Yeah. And I, I, so I was out here in 1980 and I was walking down the street at night, you know, and I was very homesick and a car pulled up to a red light and stopped. And it was a Springsteen song with a sax solo. And I realized, wow, I even missed that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's homesick right there. Yeah. That's how homesick I was. Like I would go back to New Jersey and listen to, to like long Springsteen sax solos if I could right now. Rosalita. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, that's, that's, that was the, um, uh, that, uh, that memory of that. Well, actually New Jersey rock and roll is funny because there was a review or something online written about the smithereens. And they said, Oh, you know, well, they're in that grand tradition of New Jersey rock and roll. And I laughed out loud because I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah. Like New Jersey rock and roll. There is such a thing. And I thought that was the funniest phrase I'd ever heard. So I, and I, and then right away I was like, Oh man, this connects to that homesick moment. This is, you know, and it just all, all came together really fast after that. With that New Jersey rock and roll feeling, I I, I hear that what you, the New Jersey, and I, I mean, like you said, I never really thought of a New Jersey sound other than Springsteen. That's the only thing I really associated with New Jersey. But that Northeastern New Jersey, New York kind of feel, of, if you want to broaden it a little bit, I can hear that in the song you released for Record Day, Dancing in My Mind. Definitely hear a bit of the northeastern rock in that. Yep. Well, you know, <laughs> but that's what those are, those are my roots. Yeah, and I like. I grew up. I grew. I grew up playing in bar bands. You know, uh, uh, when I was a teenager. Yeah, New, New Jersey bar band. It seeps into you, I guess. And then Wayne Fontana was wrong. That's a great song by both you and Wayne Fontana. <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> so I really have enjoyed all this this album it's just such a it's just a, a really nice album to listen to it's 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 very easy to listen to. I, I don't have to be in a certain mood to listen to it i can just put it on no matter what i'm feeling so that's one of the things i really like about it and i'm going to actually try to listen to it in the correct running order from now on so 
Maybe I'll get an even different, a, a different feel for the album when I actually listen to it the way you actually want me to listen to it. Yeah, you might, you might, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm aware now that, that, you know, a la carte listening is how most people listen. Yeah. And how most people buy music. They don't buy an entire album. They'll buy one song. And so the availability, I know that this, you know, reshuffling is happening. It, it's out of my control once it leaves me. Right. And in the marketplace and, and in the listener's iPod or I just showed my, I just showed my <laughs> age there. I, <laughs> iPod. Uh, that's, that's true. <laughs> well, you could have said it when you, when they get the CD and hit the shuffle button. Yeah, exactly. And that's when that started for me. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Like, oh my gosh, I can listen to this and just random songs pop up. This is great. Yeah, exactly. I've kept you for quite a while at this point. Where can people find the album? How can they purchase it and follow you uh, and, and check out your pot, your radio show and the podcast. How can they get the whole Ben Vaughn experience? Well, the radio show is called the many moods of Ben Vaughn and it's available everywhere. You can get podcasts. I mean, iTunes, Google play, um, Stitcher, you know, everywhere. Right. Very easy to find the many moods of Ben Vaughn. My album is available on, uh, iTunes and Bandcamp. It will be, uh, yeah, available iTunes, Bandcamp, and all the, all the usual places, you know? Okay. It's, uh, the marketplace is pretty easy to access now for independent artists. And I'm doing this all on my own now without a record company. And it's great. Oh, wow. That's gotta be liberating. It's Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a social media presence where people can follow you? I do. Um, my website is benvon.org. Don't go to benvon.com because somebody else has that and they're pretending to be me right now, which is really something I have a lawyer uh, trying to stop because they're, they're talking about food and, and, and favorite, you know, vacation places like, Oh my <laughs> what? It's very weird. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. I mean, I, I think I just sent your listeners to that cause it sounds interesting, but it's not, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not that interesting. Not nearly as interesting as benvon.org. Yeah. Benvon.org is where, all information about me is, and also, um, I I'm on Facebook, the many moods of Ben Vaughn, uh, Facebook page. And that's about it. I'm on Instagram, uh, intermittently on this. I keep forgetting. I have it. <laughs> that's my favorite one. I love Instagram. Yeah. I'm on there as Ben Vaughn or as Ben Vaughn music or the many moods of Ben Vaughn. Okay. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much for spending so much time with me and entertaining all my questions and, and telling me some great stories. I absolutely loved hearing about, I mean, it's such a unique career arc. It's just, it's, it's fascinating to me. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's been, a, it's, it's really, uh, it's been an interesting career and it's, um, continues to surprise me and always, it always has, it's, it's really been satisfying in that way. Oh, well, I hope it keeps going for you because I'm really enjoying it. I got into you late, so I'm going, I'm going back and listening to, to the uh, discography, and I'm really, really liking it. Well, thanks, man. I'm really glad to hear that, and thanks for taking that time and, uh, and also for this interview. It was a lot of fun. Tell me how does a heart 
that's broken never mend. Asking, asking for a friend. And how many days with nights that never end? Asking, asking for a friend.